We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Klaus Badenhagen. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing speculation that the DPP will announce that William Lai is its vice presidential candidate, Han Guoyu being a man of the people, local YouTubers announcing plans to establish a new political party, a United Nations report citing Taiwan as being the largest beneficiary of the US-China trade war, calls for the government to ban brokers from illegally charging migrant workers hefty transfer fees, the scrapping of a facial recognition system from a Taiwan Railways Administration surveillance camera trial run and the latest on Lam Wing Key's fundraiser to reopen his Causeway Bay bookstore here in Taiwan. But we'll begin with the government on Tuesday of this week reacting to China's announcement of 26 measures which Beijing said means that Taiwanese nationals will get the same treatment as their Chinese counterparts. Now China's Taiwan Affairs Office on Monday said that the measures are designed to share and I quote the mainland's development opportunities with Taiwan compatriots and provide them with equal treatment. According to the office, the 26 measures are supplement to and improvements on the 31 measures which were unveiled by the Chinese government last year in an effort to give Taiwan residents who study and work there the same treatment as residents of China. Now, half of the 26 new measures are for Taiwan-funded companies operating in China and allow them to take part in the construction of major technical equipment, 5G, civil aviation and other projects. Now, the rest of the measures are for Taiwan residents simply living in China China and the Taiwan Affairs Office in Beijing said that they will provide more convenience in transportation, housing and the evaluation of professional titles. Now, and one of those measures actually stipulates that Taiwanese citizens can ask for consular assistance from Chinese embassies or representative offices overseas should they encounter any emergencies. Now, the Tsai administration here described the new measures as being aimed solely at dividing Taiwan and an attempt to influence the outcome of the January presidential and legislative elections, with the presidential office saying that the measures are China's plan to sell its one country, two systems formula to the Taiwanese people. So, Brian, will you be rushing to Beijing to take any use of these 26 measures whatsoever? I think likely not, because for me, I would fear being kidnapped. However, it, it is quite interesting that uh, Beijing has stuck with the same strategy it did last year in offering new incentives, uh, building off its, its past incentives. This is something that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has attacked, claiming that this is old wine in, new bottle, uh, in a new bottle more or less. Um, and I think that is so, actually. Ch- uh, China has stuck to the same strategy it did last time of offering economic incentives. Um, there are some interesting developments in terms of how which industries they're targeting, for example, 5G, um, because that has become a global issue, and Taiwanese tech companies might be quite interested in, in Chinese telecommunication equipment, even if there are increasing worries about the security um, threats that may come with that. And I think that with uh, civil aviation, this is also quite interesting because of the fact that this has been controversial, that Taiwan has been excluded from international aviation bodies because of Chinese pressure, yet Taiwanese airlines. Um, for Taiwanese airlines, China is a major market. Um, I think it is generally a strategy, though, that China adopts across the board in Hong Kong, uh, even Xinjiang, Tibet, in which there are generous subsidies. The attempt is to lure people back into the fold using economic subsidies. Um, in the same time frame, Beijing declared 16 measures in Hong Kong, for example. It sounds quite similar, actually, as a plan. Do you think there's any way they will actually convince Taiwanese by adding these additional measures now to, to actually go to China? I mean, if there's a Taiwanese who already knows his future lies in China, and that's where he wants to go into business. I mean, he will just happily take these additional advantages. But how many people, or are there any people who will 
now say, okay, now I really, now I really need to go to China. This convinced me here, or is it just a symbolic psychological warfare? I think so. I think so. And that's the thing that actually puzzles me, that China has not come up with new strategies to lure over Taiwanese. It's relied on the same thing and, and offering the same thing. For example, I mean, you see this Hong Kong, too, just after the print protests, uh, Beijing claims will strengthen education, nationalist education. And this is what something that provoked outrage again. And so in Taiwan, I think then you also just have this repeated use of the same strategy. Um, and I think that just going back even to January, Xi Jinping's speech in which he said that one country, two systems was a framework by which unification was to be achieved. China has not come with a new formula. It has not thought of a new strategy to win over um, uh, 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 Taiwanese, besides, again, just economic incentives, political pressure from outside, and so forth. I um, mean, this is targeted towards people in, involved in tech companies, also young people, because of the awareness that salaries in Taiwan are incredibly low. And this is a major reason why, why young people consider working in China. Um, but beyond that, it hasn't actually thought of a new way to sell itself, I think. And that's, that's actually something that's quite interesting. And what about the embassy thing? I mean, do you see Taiwanese passport holders popping off to the PRC embassy should they find an emergency? Um, and that's right. I think that's also uh, something that China has really targeted because noting these events in which it's claimed that the Taiwanese uh, embassy or consulate was not able to help Taiwanese in a, for example, disaster area where there's an accident or something like that, and that they would have to go instead towards the uh, Chinese embassy. I mean, this was controversial in, in a number of locations. And some of these uh, claims regarding incidents, uh, for example, in Japan, have been accused of being fake news. Uh, and there's been blowback from that. But China realizes this is a way to make the uh, Thai administration look weak internationally and make it appear as though the Chinese government is more able to protect uh, Taiwanese even. And therefore, this is this is why you, they would adopt this. I mean, this does show that they have their eyes on the news, but putting in this kind of overall package of just more economic incentives, it seems kind of repetitive. And considering they did this last year, too, um, it seems like they are just doing more of the same in the months before elections. But actually, it's interesting they're launching this now with a shorter time frame before elections, whereas last year it was in uh, March that they announced these uh, uh, 31 incentives. That was uh, seven months before elections. I mean, do you, Klaus, do you see Taiwanese people queuing up outside PRC embassies? I don't know what people would do in case of a real emergency and no Taiwanese consulate or no Taiwanese representative office at hand. I mean, um, I would understand if someone would take any help they can get in a really serious situation. But um, generally, um, apart from those emergency scenarios, I don't really see it. I mean, why, why would they, all the experiences they had? What do you expect there, like to, to get a cup of tea and some, some Chinese food when you are visiting Paris or what? And Brian, I mean, do you think this could come, blow back on certain Taiwanese people do take advantage, or advantage being an odd word, but advantage of these 26 measures? Could they be in trouble here in Taiwan? It depends. It depends. I think particularly um, 5G is a sensitive uh, topic, and so then that actually does raise issues for Taiwanese tech companies. And so this is actually uh, something that China can leverage on. I think China is also looking for specific examples to claim that these uh, individuals that are, let's say, prominent or prominent companies decided to take advantage of these measures, and this shows that Taiwan is, is administration is weak and that other Taiwanese companies and, and wealthy uh, capitalists should also do this. And so there's that. But I think um, the security concerns are also quite valid because uh, China claims that this will treat Taiwanese similar to uh, Chinese nationals. And there's always concern about, for example, government IDs uh, issued by China in which uh, basically just discard Taiwan's juridical existence and treat them as Chinese nationals. Um, and then that raises security concerns about what is the status of this person then? Like, should we be allowing this person access to such technologies or investment and so forth? Um, I mean, again, just drawing the line between Taiwanese companies in China, uh, whether they are Taiwanese or Chinese, sometimes is a dispute. The, sometimes the Chinese section, despite the, country, the company being far, founded in Taiwan, is actually larger. And so you always have these issues.
And Klaus, I mean, do you see this actually influencing the outcome of the election or even dividing Taiwan? Well, as we said, it's it's nothing new. Uh, it has been done before, just one and a half years ago. It's just um, adding on to that. And I think after a few days, it's not even big news anymore right now. Right, moving on and looking at the latest election news from this week, which saw speculation that former Premier William Lai will be President Tsai Ing-wen's running mate. The DPP questioning claims by KMT presidential candidate Hang Guo Yu that he's a man of the people and an announcement by three local YouTubers that they're forming a new political party. Now, although Presidential Office Secretary General Chen Ju is refusing to either confirm or deny reports that William Lai will be the DPP's vice presidential candidate, reports this week are claiming that Tsai will announce her running mate for January's ballot as early as next Thursday. And the former Premier William Lai could be that person. Now, Chen Ju is remaining very tight-lipped about it, however telling reporters on Thursday of this week only that the vice presidential candidate will be named at the discretion of the president and she also said that she's not involved in the process of picking Tsai's running mate and in her words, things will develop naturally. Now the deadline for candidates to register for next January's presidential election is of course on November the 22nd. So Brian, William Lai, is your money on William Lai getting the VP slot? It's a good question and I think it's actually quite surprising to see William Lai now coming out and campaigning for Tsai. The particularly after going to the U.S. to sort of raise funds for the DPP as presidential uh, candidates or president, uh, political parties tend to do before elections. Uh, William Lai, was, uh, he tried to compete with Tsai for the presidential nomination of the DPP, and that actually opened the can of worms, which eventually led to further challenges to Tsai. Uh, the foremost alliance, the, the people that became that, backed William Lai originally, and afterwards then uh, trying to run Annette Liu as a candidate against Tsai, uh, splitting from the DPP, alleging that Tsai's thesis is fake. This actually did begun, begin with William Lai, uh, insisting, for example, that the DPP presidential primaries were rigged against him and that Tsai was resorting to undemocratic measures. And this has opened the can of worms for all these conspiratorial accusations. So it seems like now he's trying to go back to party solidarity in some form. On the other hand, it does make sense. It would make sense for the both of them because, I mean, I, I think we can um, we can see William Lai as still wanting to be president one day and there would be no better platform to launch this from four years from now than if he already was vice president. <laughs> And for Tsai, this would be an opportunity to signal to the deep green camp, see now we did make up again, we are one one party after all. So trying to, to heal some of those divisions that came about through the primary process. Mm, it would make sense. Uh, I think William Lai does still have his eyes set on the presidency down the line. That's uh, one of his reasons for challenging Tsai is probably fear that Chen Wen-san or some other middle generation, quote-unquote, DP politicians would eventually challenge him. And so he tried to get in there first. Um, being vice president might be a way to do that, to keep himself in the public eye now that he doesn't have a position as mayor of Tainan or as premier. And it's also a way to keep him out of being attacked, because the vice president is oftentimes a position in which you don't actually have to make very concrete political stances on which you might get attacked the way you would if you are president or premier. And so this could be a way to kind of preserve him, uh, position himself as a successor, but he still does have to contend with these these uh, DPP middle generation politicians. And so it might be the best move for him right now, because uh, after this failed challenge, it might just be the best way to keep his name in the public and because he doesn't have any office at all, if he doesn't, if he doesn't become vice president, he is not the mayor anymore. He cannot become the premier again, and he is not running for parliament. So he will just be out of the public eye. Mm. I guess the only spot after that is chairman of the DPP. But That's do, true. Do you see William Lai becoming chairman of the DPP, or will that be a bit of a step down for him? 
it depends. I mean, he would also have to come under fire if that was the case. And I think that uh, Cho Dong Tai is considered he was he was put in that position with the support of many of the middle generation DPP politicians. So he and William Lai have some uh, would be fighting over the same base of support in that sense. Um, it's a question then. Um, I think that it would actually probably be the best move for William Nye now and as also a way to sort of rehabilitate his image among people that view him as perhaps disloyal or a turncoat for even opening up this, uh, allowing for these challenges to tie in a way that threatened the fundamental unity of the pan-green camp. Anyway, moving on to Hangor Yu. Now, the Han Man of the People spat sent us on charges by the DPP that his 2011 purchase of an apartment in Taipei's Nangan district for more than 70 million NT runs rather contrary to such a claim that he's an everyday bloke. Now, the statement by the DPP came after Next Magazine published a news story about the apartment purchase. And DPP lawmaker Guan Ling told reporters that Han should cease claiming that he's an everyday person and stop running an election campaign that focuses on class struggle if he can afford to spend such an exuberant amount on a property. Now, a spokesperson for Han's campaign office dismissed the charge, saying simply that everybody has the right to buy and sell a property. Now, on Thursday of this week, Han came out himself and basically, well, he blamed the DPP for leaking information about the sale and he also blamed the media for leaking information about the sale. So who leaked information about the sale and did he buy a property worth that much money and simply not tell anybody. Well, now the next magazine came out and they said we were not given this um, information by some government leak, but we did good old-fashioned journalistic groundwork. We went to the apartment building, we talked to other people living there, we checked public records and all that. So, um, of course, Hang Wu would jump on this opportunity to say uh, the government is abusing its power and leaking information about me, but... Um, it, it, there needs to be some more proof to that, but of course something will stick if he comes out with it. As for buying and selling two million plus US dollar apartments, how, how usual would you say that is in Taiwanese no, society? I don't, I don't think that's I don't think that's usual. Um, most young people can't even afford apartment, and they probably would never be able to. And so this does actually, I think, point to his uh, the big gap between Han and everyday people. Um, yeah, it's, that's right. I think it is just the regular groundwork. It's possible to look this stuff up. Uh, it's not that hard to find this information through public records, but I think regular citizens are not always aware from that. And so perhaps this does have uh, this accusation will have circulation among some grounds. But Han is increasingly coming under fire for his property scandals and the properties he owns. Uh, there's a farmhouse he owned in Ringling in which he had an illegal structure, which was a basketball court. And reportedly, as soon as that was discovered by the media, then he ordered the demolition of that. Um, but it's generally the case, I think, that a lot of politicians own quite expensive properties. This includes Tsai, who, um, Tsai herself, who lives in Zhongxia Zhuanghua, uh, in an apartment building there. That's quite expensive area. Uh, Huang Guochang of the New Power Party is also known to own a number of properties, actually. And so it's actually, it's actually more common than I think, uh, to give Han a little bit of credit. I think it's actually not only him that owns uh, expensive properties, but it does definitely, uh, for him, particularly as leveraging all this everyday m- image, it, it, is, it is an issue. But, I mean, he has a point saying he bought that apartment in 2011 and sold it in 2015 when he was not holding any public office. If you're holding public office, you're required to disclose your, your, uh, your property and other assets. But um, has there been precedence for this, like looking into politicians' past so closely before they actually... Um, I think it's I think it's a bigger issue. It's a more difficult issue with Han because uh, he was formerly a legislature and this was a period before he had assumed a position as the head of the Taipei Agricultural Promotion Marketing Association or... Corporation. Corporation. I always mix it up. <laughs> uh, 
but he was in between positions and so but before that he was already a politician and and so uh he he's actually just not an everyday person at that point in time he was he's trying to claim that this was before i became a politician but that's not true a lot of han supporters actually seem unaware that he had this long political history before um before becoming this this superstar uh through his his gaoshong merrill run um and i think that just uh um I think that, yeah, it's in his advantage to insist that he's an everyman, but he's never been an everyman. Yeah, what about his class struggle accusations? Because Terry Guar allegedly dropped out of the race because he refused to take part in a class struggle, which <laughs> Terry Guar accused Han Guoyu of running. Yeah, Han does really claim to be a person that speaks for everyday people, including claiming that I worked all these jobs when I was a teenager, I worked at the American Club, and sometimes these claims are not entirely true. Um, Han is really leveraging to people that consider themselves working class, everyday people, and uh, underprivileged or actually marginalized. And this this rhetoric, uh, he has embraced that. Uh, the KMT does have a history of trying to act as though it is uh, on the side of labor. And Han, I think, in his appeals to ROC nationalism and, and traditionalism, has taken on this to some extent. Um, he accused Thai of being a uh, elite um, his, his statement that she is uh, plump and white, whereas he is skinny and brown or dark, and that this is claiming that he is more working class and Thai and other these these intellectual elites currently leading the government do not stand for the everyday people. I mean, his hardcore supporters love it, though. I mean, they they just look it up, and uh, now he can even turn this around. He could say, "Wow, yeah, I bought this apartment, but you see, I, I had to sell it at a loss. I even made a loss of three point five percent. You see, I, I'm not I'm not suited for these big money." people's games i'm just like one of you i shouldn't have done this anyway in our final election news piece for this week local youtubers chou wei jia jung jirachi and chen Zhejian have announced plans to form a new political party which will be called and wait for it the unstoppable joy party i thought it was a rave but never mind anyway <laughs> according to chou the party's policies will be geared towards making taiwan a happier place and also to raise awareness about social issues including marriage equality the need for public housing and judicial reform now Cho is known by the moniker Froggy on his YouTube page and he was in fact elected to the Taipei City Council for the Sungshan Shinny District in last November's local elections. So Klaus, another political party. What Taiwan did have and does have its fair share of weird small political parties that uh, you don't really know why these people are running them considering they have no chance of getting elected into anything. But um, this might be the next, the next example for that but we can also remember that back in 2010, the Pirate Party or Pirate Parties were a force to be reckoned with in a lot of European countries. And um, they did get elected to European Parliament and whatever. And this was at a time when the um, digitalization, social networking influence on society was just a fraction of what it is today. So if, if they really have a clever way of reaching out to their support group who knows who knows what can happen maybe they do find a spot for themselves and brian apparently they hope to form the party officially in next thursday at the earliest the same day the dpp could announce its vice presidential candidate uh, that's right. And I think also it's very interesting because these are actually YouTube celebrities that are very close with progressive civil society groups and parties such as the Third Force. And so I even wonder, with, for example, the New Power Party dissolving and collapsing and internally splitting, is this an attempt to lure over these these activist progressive candidates to a new party brand? Um, it's also just it's a good test as to what is the influence of social media and entertainment on elections. Uh, Froggy Chu, I lived in that district. I lived across the street from his office. He didn't have a single billboard in that area in the entire area. 
area. And I've talked to Bill in his campaign. He didn't have any billboards, but he won purely through online advertising. Uh, for example, him and Froggy and uh, Retina, who does the parodic uh, news television show ICT-TV, which parodies want-want, um, the, the, the Pam Blue networks, um, they have over 300,000 followers on YouTube, and politicians always like to appear with people that have such substantial followings, um, whether Tsai Ing-wen or Huang Guochang, whoever, going out of their way to uh, make appearance with YouTube stars. There were rumors that they were considering recruiting these YouTube stars for running. Um, now YouTubers have formed their own political party, apparently, and I don't I don't know if they'll run candidates, but this is also just a very interesting development, I think. So wh- where would you position them, like, policy-wise? Um, very similar to the Third Force, basically aligned with the Third Force. Uh, even people that are former Third Force candidates have become part of this party. And so this is actually something that is surprising. Um, but I actually just don't know how serious it is in terms of running. Reading their, a lot of their statements, it's uh, very unclear to me how serious this is. <laughs> At, at, at what point did they start making political statements? I mean, did were they already famous or was... They were already famous. Um, and so then uh, Froggy decided to run for office and unexpectedly won. I don't know if he himself actually thought he would win, but he did, and he kept at it. Yeah, but did, did he do anything to give him political credibility before that, or did that just come out of the blue? It just sort of came out of the blue, but I think it's a, it's a very generational thing. Um, actually, the other two, uh, Shisha77 uh, and Retina, uh, are, were, I think not really so humor focused ICT TV was it was actually just making fun of KMT uh, news networks and affiliated news networks and so forth uh, and that, that is actually very political then it's it's almost just doing a straight version of what is laughable to many young people in terms of seeing these news programs today um, but I think that it's, it's it is something generational and it speaks to the demographics that, that actually consume these these media Anyway, moving away from politics and the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development this week said that Taiwan is apparently the biggest beneficiary of the ongoing trade war between the United States and China as companies have been diverting production to other markets. Now, along with Taiwan, apparently Mexico, the European Union and Vietnam have also benefited from the effects of the trade divisions, but Taiwan, of course, has been the biggest winner. Now, the UN agency said that the diversion of the production of goods for exports to the US from China to Taiwan has resulted in an additional exports from Taiwan to the US of about 4.2 billion US dollars in the first half of this year. So, Brian, Taiwan, the big winner in the US-China trade war. Of course, several months ago, people were predicting this. That's right. And so there's been talk a while of Taiwan benefiting from the US-China trade war, um, whether this being in terms of diverted trade to the United States or even Taiwanese companies coming back to uh, Taiwan from China. Uh, I think that, that the latter is a little more unlikely. It's more unlikely It's more likely that Taiwanese companies would relocate towards Southeast Asian countries in which you have cheaper labor. But this has been an interesting development, that this has affected global trade flows, that trade from China is down to America, and therefore Taiwan has been able to fill in this gap. Uh, the question is that if the trade war were to come to an end, would this just be a temporary blip, and would things go back? to the previous status quo? That is a question. Um, but in the meantime, it does actually give the DPP some ammunition to claim that uh, not relying solely on China can be beneficial for Taiwan's economy, that there's economic reliance uh, or economic integration with America and other Western powers would be beneficial to Taiwan as well, and that this is something to be considered, because the claim is that Taiwan, Taiwan is over-reliant on China. That's the historical claim of the Pan-Green camp. And so it adds to their narrative. But do they manage to get this message across in the campaigning, or is it the general impression in the in the public, looking at surveys, etc., is is more still doom and gloomy, right? I think so, and I think that's the issue that the, sometimes uh, economic growth is not perceived by the public, and uh, when you do have these patterns as a result of the U.S.-China trade war, uh, that's that's not 
people do not perceive that. They still think that everything is tied to China, and therefore uh, that's what will cause issues. You see the same uh, phenomenon with tourism, for example. Despite increases in tourism, uh, despite the decline in Chinese tourism and overall increase in tourism, uh, people do not perceive that because they just think that, oh, Taiwan's economy is all – the tourism industry is entirely dependent on China, and therefore not having Chinese tourists dooms us all. And that's how to communicate that is a challenge. And I think there's also the, the, the greater barrier for Taiwanese companies of doing business in America is that you have to work in English. <laughs> and so it's easier to work with a country that speaks the same language as you. It's interesting that Taiwan does feature at all in this United Nations statistics because this is not World Trade Organization where Taiwan is a member under a weird uh, name, but um, it's, it's UN data and they are normally um, not mentioned as just subsuming Taiwan into mm. China. So. Uh, maybe they couldn't avoid it in this situation. <laughs> mm. Yeah, maybe a I think so. I think so. I think Taiwan's economy is just too large that it actually creates issues if you then include it as part of China's statistics. Uh, it just creates a very inaccurate perception of the economy. I'm um, still the world's like 25th or something like that, largest economy um, by GDP. And so there's still that. But I mean, Klaus, do you see this all ending very badly if the US and China become good friends again? What? depends on how fast a rollback, like Brian just um, uh, mentioned, it could happen. I mean, there have been Taiwanese companies who have been closing down their production facilities in China and relocating them to Taiwan. Um, how realistic is it that they just reverse it and, and open, shop up, open up shop in China again just in a matter of one or two years? I, I think some of the benefits will stay here. Uh, others, where it's just about goods that will become cheaper at the moment that the tariffs are lowered again, then, of course, um, Americans would go back to ordering them from Chinese companies instead of from Taiwanese companies. So I think some of those benefits are here to stay. Right, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And this week here in Taiwan began on Sunday, if you begin your week on Sunday, but I do, so there you go. Anyway, on that day, migrant workers from Indonesia, Vietnam and the Philippines staged separate protests in Taipei, calling on the government to abolish job placement agencies. And they're urging the government now to enforce a compulsory government-to-government hiring system. Now, the Taiwan International Workers Association says although direct hiring programs currently exist between Taiwan and several countries in Southeast Asia, job vacancies are still often controlled by the brokerages. And the association says that means migrant workers who want to extend their contracts or need to change employers are charged transfer fees of between 35,000 and 80,000 NT, which is, of course, illegal. Now, Article 52 of the Employment Service Act, which was amended in 2016, as the government did that to make Taiwan more migrant worker friendly. Now, that revision made it illegal for brokerages to collect placement fees from migrant workers and they're only now legally allowed to charge service fees which range from a measly 1500 to 1800 nt per month so brian yet again migrant workers not being treated quite the way the government tells everybody they are that's right and this has been a continual refrain of migrant worker groups and migrant worker advocacy groups for years and years and years that calling for an abolition to the broker system because of the fact that it imposes uh, such stiff fees on migrant workers that are coming to taiwan to work um and 
uh, sometimes you hear counts of 20,000 to 100,000 as well. Sometimes um, sometimes migrant, wor- migrant workers are not included under the Labor Standards Act, and so they could be making less than 18,000 per month, uh, and they're made to work long hours for long, low pay uh, around the clock, no matter what industry they're in, whether they're domestic uh, caregivers, uh, whether they're working in factories, or if they are fishermen, offshore or inshore. Um, so migrant worker groups, I'm calling for G to D, uh, G to G, what they claim um, that this term for government to government hiring for a very long time. But the government, uh, the Taiwanese government, has claimed that there is a market need for broker agencies. And broker agencies, I think, tie into this larger economic uh, apparatus in which, uh, for example, if a worker is not able to pay the broker fees, they will just have to take loans from a loan agency affiliated with a broker agency. And so it's, it's actually kind of large, um, this, this uh Network. Yeah, the, the government is basically saying if we would abolish the broker system, then everybody, every company, every household would need to start negotiating with those potential workers themselves and make contracts on what he wants. That, I mean, they they are just not saying that they could come up with a different system to replace the one that's um, that's in place now, like um, establishing non-profit uh, agencies that are going to take this middleman role. They they just pretend that's not on the table at all. Mm. It's just a bit daft, really. Well, um, it looks as if those companies relying on foreign workers and the, the households, um, hundreds of thousands of families, are just a really big voters group that you don't want to annoy with the elections coming up. Mm-hmm. There have been some companies that have uh, made it a point to to uh, in- institute direct hiring practices in going to different countries and, and seeking uh, employees that way. But that's actually still quite rare. So the demand is that the government should take up this role in order to prevent this uh, legal gray zone from continuing to exist. And of course, all this comes as the government is actually hoping to hire more migrant workers to work in the island's farming sector. That's right. And I think then what do you do in that case? I think that uh, oftentimes the Taiwanese government does not actually want to really... Um, touch this issue because of the fact that a lot of these countries in which uh, migrant workers are coming from, the governments of those countries have very good, very tight relations with broker agencies. Uh, they need these tight relations in order to actually do this work. Um, and so I think actually the, the time mission is really afraid of offending other governments actually by targeting the broker system. And so unfortunately, I think this, this uh, will continue. I don't think the government will shift its stance anytime soon. And Klaus, what about opening the island's farming sector to migrant workers? Of course, they're looking at dairy farms as being the first placement for the workers. And the government this week announced that they're in talks with Vietnamese officials, Philippine officials, Indonesian officials about bringing migrant workers to work in dairy farms, which, of course, has been technically legal since April, but none have arrived because they can't sign a contract. Well, we already have um, hundreds of thousands of workers working in, in factories and in bike factories and all kinds of other sectors. If the Taiwanese agricultural sector says we need those and if the local uh, communities cannot, uh, cannot uh, offer this kind of workforce, then I don't see why, why the agricultural sector should not be opened up. If enough Taiwanese feel their jobs are being taken away, then there will be a public outcry, as we are used to in Taiwan. So if there's a big enough group in Taiwan feeling threatened, they they will come out and they will make their voice heard, and this hasn't happened in this case so far. Do you see it happening, Brian? Do you see people going, I wanted that job on a pig farm? I think it's unlikely. I think it's unlikely. Because uh, oftentimes migrant workers are called to take on the jobs that are so-called 3D, dirty, dangerous, and demeaning. Mm. Um, I think also just in terms of trying to uh, opening up the, expand the farming industry, for example, if it's with a broader pattern of of large increase in migration in Taiwan, for example, a lot of it picked up after uh, the infrastructure projects of the Changchengko period. And so um, I think that's, that's, I think people will actually accept that. 
Right, and the Taiwan Railways Administration this Wednesday announced that it was scrapping plans to use a facial recognition feature which has been installed in a new surveillance system that's currently undergoing trials at the Fong Yuen station. Now, the decision to set up the surveillance system was approved in 2014, shortly after a knife attack on the Taipei MRT in May of that same year left four people dead and 22 others injured. Now, the Railways Administration had hoped to include the facial recognition feature to allow police to easily identify people who are committing crimes on the rail network and it announced earlier this week that it was planning the trial run of the camera-based system. However, the administration backtracked on that plan some 48 hours later, saying that it decided not to use the facial recognition feature in response to widespread criticism about privacy concerns. So, Klaus, there you go. Privacy concerns, facial recognition at the Fong Yuen station. Did you plan to commit any crimes at the Fong Yuen station? (laughs) I mean, I'm one of those data protection crazy Germans, of course, and you know what we think about um, data privacy and all that. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, it speaks of a real lack of sensibility to think about rolling out a facial recognition system, like basically nationwide, at a time when everybody is talking about surveillance in China um, and, and, and social credit system, everything that's going on there. I mean, somebody should have stopped this earlier and said, let's let's give this a really good think over if we really want to do this or not. And the fact that it needed opposition KMT protests in this case to make everyone change their mind shows that, um, yeah, somebody did not really think ahead. <laughs> somebody <laughs> wasn't thinking. <laughs> I think that's right, because there's been concern across the region regarding uh, surveillance technology and the development of facial recognition technology. You see this in Hong Kong with protests in which all the protesters have to wear masks. They're afraid of identification. And uh, attempts at protesters to demolish uh, smart street lamps in which there's facial recognition technology installed. And there's also a controversy in Singapore in which these smart street lamps are also to be installed. And then, again, social credit in China and so forth. Um, between the stabbing in 2014 and now, in this five years, facial recognition technology has advanced such a great deal that's become concerning. Um, but I think that particularly after violent incidents such as uh, the uh, stabbing to death of a TRA officer um, worker on a, a train earlier this year, then you do have this, again, this demand for increased security. But then the trade-off is privacy concerns. Um, and I think that's also just that if there was another such incident, it is possible that public opinion would swing the other way and say that then, oh, we actually do need this. And, you know, and that suddenly these concerns about privacy would disappear and then there would require another outcry to raise these concerns and that's that's also yeah, a concern but, to me but, but you already have cameras on the trains and mm. subways and they they will probably get more and if something happens police can take this camera footage and run their own facial recognition software whatever they have over that but what you really don't need is like a real-time f- facial recognition surveillance of uh, a huge part of the Taiwanese public all the time 24-7 without anyone being suspected of doing anything at all I think um, the TRA being a state-owned uh, company should really stay well clear of that. I, I agree totally. And I think that uh, it's, it's, it's actually quite concerning then that you do have this call because I also just do not see how this increased security. This would not have prevented the, the subway um, stabbing or just the TRA stabbing if they had recognized this man through facial recognition technology because then because it's not that this person fled and had to be captured and so forth. It's not even the right solution to the, the problem. Um, and then it is a concern when you have these facial recognition databases that are in the hands of the government. Uh, what, who knows what could happen um, with a political administration that's willing to spy on the citizens, for example or that this data would end up in the wrong hands, in the hands of corporations, for example. Could one argue, to play the devil's advocate, that if one is not going to do anything wrong, would it really matter? Well, if you have 
like if you say I have nothing to hide, then why don't you install a camera in your in your bedroom or in your bathroom? I mean, that's that's the logical extension of this thinking. I think so. I think so. And I think that just uh, this belief is somewhat legalistic that if you have nothing to hide, then you should not have any concerns about your privacy because people can always use this data for nefarious purposes. For example, biometrics, stealing biometrics and, and using this as to access your personal information and, and to uh, for the purposes of fraud and etc. Um, I think we live in an increasingly dangerous world in which there's so much data being produced by everybody that it can end up in the wrong hands, in the hands of nefarious actors, whether state or scammers or companies and so forth. Anyway, we'll leave it right there, and we're not being filmed in the studio now. So before we go, <laughs> Hong Kong resident Lam Wing Ki, who of course fled to Taiwan earlier this year due to concerns he would be extradited to China under the now scrapped extradition bill, looks set to open his new Causeway Bay bookstore here in Taiwan. Now, Lam announced this week that he's raised nearly six million in tea through an online fundraising website over the past two months to help pay for his plan to reopen the bookstore. Now, the six million in tea is more than double Lam's original target and according to lamb he's found an ideal location for the bookstore with good rent however according to the fundraising system that he used he now has i believe a month brian to actually open the store or is it two months one one or two months um that's right it's after the end of the crowdfunding campaign he has a one month time frame to open the store and would that happen i think it could happen uh, it depends on renovation and so forth he could open it in some form um i also think that the the pl- platform that he used is actually fairly close to progressive civil society i don't think they would be so stringent on it um and he wants to open in Ding, which is a very commercial area there are there's an s there um i actually live in this area <laughs> and there's actually one bookstore that was opened by a hong konger uh as a way to secure residency in Taiwan, apparently it's on. It's a book uh, bookstore focused on Hong Kong film, and so he'd be joining this company. And I, he especially wants it there because of the fact there are a lot of Chinese tourists that pass through. Um, I think it's a really good opportunity, though, to have a platform for discussion about these issues facing Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, to have a bookstore, I think that um, that's it's a positive development. Um, I also just I, I do wonder what he would be selling there because his previous bookstore was quite tabloidy with these sensationalist um, reporting on on Chinese political leaders and their so-called private lives. But I think it is it is a it is a good development. Um, I think it's an issue though that for many that are not as high profile as Lam and Key, they don't actually have ways to stay in Taiwan because of the fact that they can't secure residency through opening businesses. Um, they're not famous enough to get the crowdfunding campaign to do this. Yeah, so, so you think with this kind of money at hand now, at least he can get a legitimate businessman investor visa to have a residency status in Taiwan, unlike many others from Hong Kong. I mean, you wrote about this recently. Mm, that's right. That's right. I think he can. Um, but it's also surprising that even with someone as high profile as him, it took so long to actually open this bookstore. He had some issues previously with investors, actually investors who are Chinese, supposedly. Um, that's what he claimed. And that they balked at the proposition to open a bookstore eventually, and so he turned to crowdfunding. And this was uh, him doing this crowdfunding campaign came after a long period of uncertainty in which uh, it was not clear if he'd be eventually allowed to stay in Taiwan because of the fact that he had not gotten employment, he had not raised enough money to open a bookstore through some entrepreneurship visa. And um, there was just, so even if someone as high profile as him was having trouble staying here, then then I think that's actually kind of dire straits. Um, And of course, opening a bookstore, Klaus, when bookstores are closing. Well, if when people are going to visit this bookstore, it will not be actually to because they want to buy books, but because they want to be there, meet this guy, say I've been there, show their support for him. 
So, um, yeah, but he's not th- going to make any will... unless he sells cups of tea and coffee. He's not going to make any money, then is he? Well, he can he can charge for every Instagram photo being taken in the store, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I was surprised because he once opened in Siemensdien and not, for example, around uh, around NTU, in which there's a lot of independent smaller bookstores, and yeah, so that the that, Taiwan bookstores they already maybe that's right, and they also have trouble surviving too, but they have survived so far and some for decades, and so I'm surprised he doesn't want to join the crowd of independent bookstores, but he's aiming to be in this very commercial area. These, um, maybe you're trying to avoid universities. Maybe the bookstore is only what um, Su- uh, Shiming's uh, noodle shop in Tokyo was when Shiming was running the Taiwanese um, uh, ne- network there conspiring against the Chiang Kai-shek government. So the noodle shop was just a front and on the second <laughs> and third floor he trained the, the revolutionaries. Maybe that's what's going to happen here. So Lam Wing Key is going to open a bookstore in Trendy Shimanding and train commandos on the second floor, Brian. That sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, just, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, the secret lives of young people. Who knows? But like Klaus said, do you think it become, it become, it become a, a focal point for a, a certain people to go there and be, it would be trendy to go there, do you think? I think it would be, because I think particularly um, there used to be a lot of actors' bookstores and cafes, but in the past five years since the Sunfire Movement and the kind of decline of very prominent youth activism in Taiwan, you have seen the gradual closing of a lot of these places. I mean, I myself was trying to open up one place in the same area, <laughs> but that didn't work out. Um, so I think there is actually a market for that. Yeah, yeah. If, if he's smart and if the space he gets his hand on is uh, big enough, he can have like an event space there holding uh, gatherings, press conferences... That's right. Yeah, everything so. you want to do in your space. Exactly. And it didn't work out somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have been competition too if we had that space. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully competition. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Klaus Bardenhagen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.